Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Dr. Shannon Mattern. She's a professor of anthropology at the New School for Social Research. Her books include Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, 5,000 Years of Urban Media, and The New Downtown Library, Designing with Communities. Her latest work, and this is where we're going to be spending, I would say, the lion's share of our time in this conversation, is called A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences. I've been really looking forward to this conversation, and I'm really happy that you're joining me on the deep dive this afternoon. Well, thank you very much for having me, Philip. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, the book, I I finished it the other day, and it is very dense, and I mean that in the best possible way. It's like this really rich exploration of many of the ideas, metaphors, thought processes, such as they are that have gone into how we envision and think about cities. Mm-hmm. And as a as a born and bred New Yorker, overly proud New Yorker, this is extremely meaningful to me. Um, mm-hmm. As I've spent all my time in my life primarily in cities and I'm the quintessential city kid. Um, so I'm a big believer in cities. Um, so with, with that preamble, I, I really wanted to start in this idea around metaphors and why we've chosen or or why one of the preferred metaphors when we think about a city is to think of it in this mechanical language, which has changed over the years, but has now settled into a lot of computer language and, and data language. So I want to start us off there. Sure. So I didn't start out. Well, this this book actually came as a product of rethinking several essays that I've written for a journal called Places Journal over the past decade or so. So it's drawing on, even though there are four chapters in the book, plus an introduction and a conclusion, it's really kind of an amalgamation and a remixing of maybe 10 different pieces, plus a whole, body, a whole bunch of new material. But I didn't start out in, in reassembling this material for the book, thinking that this was going to be a book about metaphors, but that ended up being kind of a central organizing principle. And part of that was because the titular article, I wrote an article, uh, I don't know, over five years ago, I forget the exact date, called A City is Not a Computer, that then became the signature article for the, for the book. And that was um, based on a prompt for an edited collection. The editors had asked me to write about how the city is like an information processing machine. So that was my task, my assignment. And as I sat down to write it, I realized that there's plenty of literature that talks about that, um, not only academic, but also kind of in planning and, and practical kind of um, technical literature. But I found that uh, it was such an, not necessarily a depressing, but well, it was depressing in its impoverishment, uh, this reductive way of thinking about how cities work. So I ended up taking the assignment and flipping it around and writing about how a city is not like a computer. So I, the paper I turned in was essentially the opposite of what I was asked to write. And then someone else later on said to me, oh, that reminds me of uh, Christopher Alexander's also somewhat w- a very well-known essay, A City is Not a Tree. This idea of how we equate cities with different organic or mechanical or computational or biological metaphors, 
became something that was kind of an organizing principle for the book. And these matter not only because it shapes how we can talk to one another about cities, but they play out, they're operationalized in legal, technical, practical ways that really shape how cities are designed, how they're built, how they're governed, and how we experience them. And that's why they matter. I'm glad you brought up the tree portion of the conversation because you you spend some time on that at the beginning of the book. And I, and I did go and read some of additional essays hmm. that you've covered as well. I try to do my research before I get on the mic. <laughs> and it, it made me think a little bit as I think trees as a metaphor is a seductive one in particular because it does link to a natural and, and biological system mm-hmm. that is quite attractive, I think, to a certain branch, no pun intended, of <laughs> urban planners and the ones that are kind of doing this kind of thinking. But I'm, I'm curious what you think about the idea that the notion of of the tree as a metaphor for a city is actually a very ordered way in which we think about trees rather than a a wilder kind of rewilding way in which like forests work and are connected. Like people very rarely say a city's like a forest. They will kind of single out like the single entity within it. I'm I'm curious about how those different shifts kind of determine the reality that we're seeking in a in a in a way. Yeah. So interestingly, um, the fact that I started and ended the book with Christopher Alexander's and the idea of the city as a tree, using that as kind of a counterpoint. If the city is or is not a computer or a machine, a biophysical body, I wanted to pay homage in a way to kind of this historical text, Christopher Alexander's, by starting with trees and then ending with trees at the end and saying that the organic, biological, kind of um, biotic metaphor of the tree is something that helps us to think against the machinic or the computational metaphor. But the way Alexander thinks about trees is that he's contrasting it. He's regarding trees as rather limiting, formalistically simplistic metaphor compared with this tree where the city is what he calls a semi-lattice. A tree has like a, a rigid root structure and branches. So he's saying that a lot of cities that are planned as trees have often a central root a central kind of transit route, and then uh, branches that that filter off of them. And it tends to produce kind of overly formalistic, um, often symmetrical, not very, doesn't really allow for orga- the, the, the potentially rich and exciting organic messiness of more quote unquote natural growth. The tree city is the master plan city in Alexander's language. Interestingly, um, so so my work with trees for this book uh, spawned another research project that I'm actually going to be publishing in places next Tuesday. It should come out on, I forget what the date is, the 21st or 22nd of September, looking at tree metaphors. So how the tree has historically been a metaphor in intellectual history. We have the tree of knowledge, the tree of good and evil. We have so many decisions being kind of related to trees, everything from the history of lynching to the fact that so many treatises and important kind of governmental decisions have been made under symbolically significant trees. And then the tree also playing out in computational metaphors. So we have things like decision trees, which is kind of an algorithm for decision-making. A counterpart to those is the random forest, which is multiple decision trees working together. So how trees have both been simplistically considered and how they've been rendered kind of more productively messy and entangled and feral, to use kind of Anna Singh's term. So looking at all the different ways that trees have manifested as either on a gradient of simplicity to meta, to uh, to complexity as a metaphor, um, and realizing that trees have been a really powerful metaphor throughout, especially Western history, but beyond the West as well. You're, you're definitely going to have to send me that um that article. 
be freely available online next awesome. Tuesday. Awesome. And, you know, I, I don't want to um, oversimplify this, but I, it, when I think about the many metaphors that you've shared and the way in which trees are laden throughout our history, as you, you really eloquently described, it made me start to also think about the notion of invisibility in in the same way that we see the the structure of of the tree that's visible but there is a a a root structure that is actually very connected even within the ideas of of forest and how they communicate with one another and 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 share with one another i think in ways that in previous iterations, we probably didn't even realize there's lots of new work on that. And I'm, I'm, I want to reference that in the invisibility piece to sort of link that to this idea that cities exist both in the physical form that we can see, but also invis- in, exist in many invisible ways. And you talk about that quite a bit as well when it comes to infrastructure and resource allocation. So I want to um, introduce that idea of invisibility and in, in how we think about our city structures. Absolutely. And then again, if we just push a little further with this idea of the tree and the forest as a metaphor, I think it's really great that you can, important that you contrasted the tree as the seemingly clarifying metaphor. It gives us like a clear structure, even the way we kind of classify uh, the history of classification. We follow kind of these branching nodes to determine how something fits into the order of the world. Whereas the forest historically has been a place of obfuscation, a place of the sublime, a place of hiding, a place of invisibility to use your term. And so some cases that invisibility is a good thing because it has provided a space of respite and and hiding for um, kind of threatened populations. So the forest is a space of hope of survival for some kind of marginalized populations, but it also has this pejorative or negative connotation of being a space of fear and danger. But you're absolutely right that these ideas, although I draw them out more explicitly in that article that's going to come out soon, they were a bit more implicit throughout the book. And this is where I'm arguing that um, there a lot of the uh, the messier, uh, more poetic, more elusive parts are the things that aren't that aren't don't really readily lend themselves to capturing by an algorithm the decision tree model of thinking about a city. So I really want, that's why I'm arguing against saying that there's productive things we can look at computationally rendering cities, but then there's so much that escapes that model. We have to think about those uh, poetic, invisible, the things that kind of don't want to come to light. Uh, So all of these invisible parts are worth considering too. And sometimes those knowledges aren't something that you can render through a computer or through a surveillance camera. They're things that are embedded in communities and other types of more implicit or indigenous knowledges. And those have to be valued as well. It's interesting when you were kind of sharing those thoughts about what is seen and and not seen as it pertains to a forest. It has these dual purposes. It it made me think as we kind of continue the the idea of this sort of mechanical language that is, is really when we're saying like a city is not a computer, like how I took that is like we're using very deterministic mechanical language to end up with a, a working system. And data is a, is a big part of that, of that. And as you were kind of making, making that point, it made me think that data does a lot of what a, a forest does in the sense that it, it claims to reveal, but sometimes it obscures as, as well. And it, and there is such a, a reliance and, and, I make the argument of over-reliance on, on data. And, and how do you see that connecting to, again, this sort of model 
that that many cities are incorporating and, and thinking about in terms of how to make themselves work? Well, this is in part why I start the book with, as I mentioned, I had the introduction where I introduced the tree metaphor, but then the first full chapter is really taking this object lesson from an, a, a phenomenon or an object that I think emblematizes this way of thinking where data is going to provide us with an omniscient, objective, um, impartial, and um, unbiased perspective of everything that matters in a city. And that is through the model of the dashboard, which is kind of the control center where a lot of cities have deployed them, uh, not only cities, but also kind of state and federal governments and non-governmental organizations and even institutions like school systems, um, public health institutions have a dashboard where they have widgetized all the things that supposedly matter. So you find a way to render as a bar chart or a graph or a dial or a ticker or some other way, mode of data visualization, all the things, all the metrics, the very variables that seem to matter, whether it's kind of counting COVID cases or looking at air particulates for, for um, kind of air quality or counting kind of traffic counts, um, looking at city budgets. What this tends to call for, though, even though it, it, there is kind of a, a, a wealth of things that do lend themselves to these modes of representation, there's plenty of stuff that matters in a city or in any institution that doesn't readily lend itself to kind of more data-driven or, or uh, data-driven interpretation. So things like if we're looking at environmental justice or um, uh, quality of life or um, kind of uh, the stickier, more historically and culturally uh, entangled things, it's really hard to figure out how to operationalize those as singular variables that can then be represented on a dashboard somewhere in, uh, as as a graph or a chart or, or a map or a heat map, for instance. So it does those, the, the really packed real estate of a dashboard does provide this sense of omniscience and this sense of kind of real time insight into what matters in a place. But there's so much that, that slips through the cracks. It's behind the screen. It doesn't even get onto the screen because it doesn't lend itself to that mode of representation. I loved that part of the book, actually. And I had a, a, a little internal chuckle to myself because when you when you started talking about the Bloomberg terminals, for example, um, that really resonated with me because I spent years of my life as a trader. So at, at at one point, I I usually when people ask me about that time in my life, I will if I don't want to have to go into a big long story, which I typically don't want to do, I'll um, reference the fact that I just didn't want to spend you know the next X number of years of my career surrounded by screens, you know, Bloomberg terminals and and other screens, you know, you're kind of sitting in this in this cockpit cockpit sort of situation, six, seven screens, multiple phones, all these kind of things flashing. And in in the book you really do this this great example where you talk about um screens acting as a talisman. And I, I wanted to give you an an opportunity to kind of walk through why in particular you, you picked the talisman um, because I had an alternative model <laughs> to, to offer rather than a talisman. Sure. Well, part of it is because there was actually, and I'm blanking on the specific context for it, but I'm looking at some of the, I'm poking fun a little bit throughout the chapter at some of the funny kind of um, tech world names, brand names that they give. It was both, first of all, the names of the tech firms um, uh, that are very much built in like the whole Web 2.0 era, the companies that were building some of these early dashboards. And one of them was actually called Talisman. And again, I'm blanking on the specific context. So I picked up on that and said, actually, that's an accurate term because these do provide 
provide this sense, this semblance of, again, omniscient, impartial. It's the computer just extracting data from the world. We're not, nothing we're, we're perceiving is colored by the perceptions, the biases, the prejudices, the historical complications of human perception. It's the computer doing its impartial kind of rendering of what's actually out there. But that's, the, the, um, that's not really what's happening. I mean, that there is a sense of divination. So what we often use these dashboards for is to give us a picture of the now so that we can uh, tweak certain things, tweak certain kind of governance apparatus or policies so that we can ultimately imagine the dashboard we want to perceive in a better future where everything's in the green, all the thumbs are up, all the dials are ratcheted all the way up. We're getting, we're hitting all of our key performance indicators. So in that case, it's a way of divining the future. So you've decided what ideal future you want to create. You've operationalized it by determining what variables together form those constructs, those values that matter to you. And you're in a way kind of reverse engineering the mode of governance and the way of being in a city that's going to lead you towards whatever, however you've defined progress on that dashboard. So in that way, it is kind of like a talisman. There is a faith that we place in data to drive us toward a better future. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I definitely loved it. And I, and I thought that in some ways, and maybe this is a judgment on, on many of the people I worked with when I was on a trading desk, I didn't even want to give them that much credit for having the thought process as to a talisman. I was like, we're just all here shaking a magic eight ball, you know, just kind of <laughs> hoping it gives us something back that we could, <laughs> that we could use, you know, it's a different kind of screen. Yes. But I was like, they don't quite deserve a talisman, right? They could, you know, had such a richer tradition and history and, and thought processes of what it lends to communities. I was like, nah, they're just all out here shaking a magic eight ball. Hoping that, things- <laughs> that works too. <laughs> Hoping that things work out, you know, you know, so much of this is wrapped up in, in language. You know, we have seen this sort of commodification of the terms like smart cities and and you talk about this so much. And, you know, I'm always left with this idea and, and many people have shared this, you've shared it as well in the book that when we're saying smart, like what do we really ultimately mean by those kind of terms. Like they seem like they would be good outcomes, right? Like who doesn't, who wants the opposite of smart, right? But what does the smart quote unquote really mean? And, you know, I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of share some, some thoughts on that, because I think it ultimately answering that kind of ultimately determines who we're thinking these things are really for and what purpose they ultimately serve. Right. So I do mention in the book, and I've I've written about kind of smart related things kind of more critically for a, quite a while, and a lot of other people do. There's a lot of writing in this area, which is in part why I wanted to think beyond smartness in the book. This isn't just a book about smart cities. It's also saying, how can we think about the very limitations of smartness that you're, you're talking about? And realizing that there are other forms of intelligence, other ways of knowing, other forms of wisdom that are embodied in and really important to making a city a vibrant, resilient, kind of historically rooted place place that we have to pay attention to, which is why I then have a chapter about libraries and knowledge infrastructures and another one about the knowledge involved in maintenance and care, which are not typically themes that are addressed in relation to smart cities, which is typically um, kind of uh, framed within a tech, the tech discourse or, or, or tech-oriented urban planning discussions. But the way smartness is typically framed, you commonly have to put a TM, a trademark behind it. 
it's a reductive way of asking epistemology, uh, epistemological questions. Epistemology is one of the key things that is woven throughout all of my work. And that's just a way of thinking about how we know what we know and how we materialize those knowings. I like to think about how we, the design, the way we design the world, our furniture, our cities, our buildings, our architecture, our objects, our gadgets, our interfaces, our dashboards, our data models. All of these are a way of kind of modeling or manifesting our epistemologies, what we want to know about about the world, and then how we kind of give those form aesthetically in these various designed objects that I mentioned. So smartness is, a, is an epistemological kind of judgment. It's a way of deciding we've given this smart, which implies a mode of knowing, to a particular way of measuring that knowing in the world. Smartness tends to be attached to extractive forms of data collection, usually on corporate platforms, and it's usually led towards kind of end goals related to efficiency and productivity and convenience. So going to your question about who this is for, they are for people for whom kind of the most pressing challenges in their world is to be to have a more convenient life or to be able to get to work more efficiently or to have like city services work more efficiently. Efficiency is not inherently bad, particularly if you have something like a catastrophe, a natural, a national disaster, a natural, excuse me, disaster, a public health crisis. The efficient deployment of public health services is super important. But if you're a matter of how quickly can my Postmates deliver or get, my, get me my dinner, that's a different order of efficiency. And that's commonly how a lot of efficient smart city smartness is conceived, is, is smartness for the people who tend to work in tech companies. And that would be mostly well-educated, mostly men, mostly white men. And so it's a particular demographic. So that smartness reflects a very different kind of, a very specific kind of psycho and demographic that tends to bracket out, maybe not even care about or know how to incorporate into their kind of methodologies, those other modes of knowing and those other um, needs and desires and wishes that people outside that population might have for their cities. And I think they don't have the concern. Or they don't really know how to so serve for it. I mean, this. I hopefully we've gotten beyond this phase, but there was a phase a few, several years ago when the answer to addressing the homeless challenge was to create kind of apps, smartphone apps for the home for homeless communities to find out where they can get what they need. How many of them are going to have smartphones and a data plan? So here it's you know you're you're trying your best, maybe with kind of the best motives to solve sticky problems outside your demographic area, but you're still solving it with the tools that are germane to your own. Group. Group. You know, it's interesting when you mention the things that are motivating our thought processes and you you mentioned care. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that because I've, I've said often that I, I feel like we're in a crisis of care in both macro ways and micro waves. And living in New York, I remember watching the mayoral primaries over the course of the spring and, and summer. And just being so dismayed that with, to some extent, none of the conversations were about really making a city or remaking a city, a city that I've lived in all my life and, and love very deeply in a way that would emphasize the care that we give one another. Everything was about like fighting the COVID war or fighting against crime or and all this kind of stuff. Like they're very kind of angry metaphors that that we used and you know putting aside the primary outcome in this part of the conversation but you know talking about how we bring to light other notions that can make 
for different city infrastructures? Like, how is that? Can we and how can we, if we can, make that more centered to the types of conversations we're having? Well, just going back to your Kate, your example of the mayoral um, primaries, I mean, there were some candidates who were talking about care. They weren't ultimately the ones that prevailed. So you have people like Maya Wiley, who's talking about technology as maybe a form of care, a tool of care. She has been a big advocate for kind of providing access to the internet, you know, like broadband access to, because there's a huge proportion of the population that doesn't have access to information resources and entertainment. And that's, it's uh, incredibly important, not just for efficiency purposes, but also for, as we've seen in the pandemic, having access to education for being, especially for kind of diasporic communities, having access to families who live around the world, being able to, everyone is, everyone kind of has the, the right to kind of unwind after work and watch a movie at home, you know? So this is access to entertainment. So there are lots of forms of kind of communal care that having something as seemingly technical as having access to the internet can provide. And that's something that Maya Wiley talked about. She also talked about reparative justice, which is a form of thinking about justice through care. And then we have Catherine Garcia, sorry, um, I'm blanking on her name, Catherine Garcia, who worked with the sanitation department. That's a form of care. Um, it's not glamorous work, but it's a, it's um, it's important maintenance work that makes the city a livable place. It's important. It's important for environmental justice, for kind of for public health, um, for beauty, uh, which is a form of like uh, when we see beauty in the city and want to preserve it as part of our communities. That's a form of caring for the physical place too. So these were they were some of subtext for some of the candidates' approaches. Uh, why am I blanking on the name of the guy who ultimately is our likely? Oh, Eric Adams. Eric Adams. Why did I blank on that? Yes. Yeah, so Eric it's Adams. Worth, it's worth blanking on. Okay. <laughs> but I guess his his focus on crime that is his way of maybe thinking about how to operationalize care is to use you know he has a history in building a lot of smart city stuff. He worked on CompStat. So he wants to essentially have a CompStat style model for a lot of city, city, city government. So he'll be using data technology to provide kind of criminal justice and resource deployment. So that's maybe his model as his technocratic way of thinking about providing care in an algorithmic form. You're so kind. <laughs> well, that generous interpretation, but I don't know that he would have used the term care. But if we want to find some parallels between some of these discussions, maybe that's his maybe not so appealing way of thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, as someone who struggles with the ability to not go after my enemies, you're so good at that. Like, you're like <laughs> he should have had you working on his campaign because I'm like, that dude definitely wasn't offering no kind of care. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he would have maybe he would have positioned it better but i was like wow dude you're just out here like you know being a cop <laughs> that doesn't i don't put care in that category well to some folks like for criminal justice is a form of caring for the community it's not it's not a form that maybe appeals to all of us it's not a form of reparative justice i mean very similarly um five or six years maybe not that long ago i forget three or four years ago maybe i wrote a piece about hudson yards which is kind of our local embodiment of a lot of these smart city ideals and i meant it as a cautionary tale and i was really surprised that some people read it said like oh my god this is amazing i can't wait to move in so there they were the demographic going back to your earlier questions of who smartness is designed for that's who smartness was designed for there are people who who have nothing to lose want to have cameras on them and kind of sensors tracking everything they do all the time because they are not the people in the crosshairs of the um, uh, more extractive and carceral forms of thinking about technology. So, 
yeah, I mean, I'm, this is all to say that maybe some of these, maybe Adams is thinking about um, kind of harsh policing, tough love as itself a form of care. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know, you know, but <laughs> I I feel like that human. I've known him all my life <laughs> in some in some way, shape, or form, and he definitely ain't about that. I've seen, you know, I've seen what thinking like his and, and others, I'm not going to lay it on on him, but Pataki and Bloomberg, like their massive rezoning of New York has changed this into a, a place that culminates in something like Hudson Yards, right? Which I, I, I laugh to see it in the book because when Hudson Yards first opened, I remember friends would be like, oh, are you going to go see it? And I was like, hell no, I'm not going all the way over there to see that mess. Like what in the world would make me a born and bred Brooklynite travel all the way to the end of nowhere to go to a mall (laughs) which is essentially what it is yes yeah tell me about hudson yards like how could that who thought that was a good idea it is atrocious (laughs) well it is interesting kind of as a case study for urban studies of like how not to do it um and it was going to be a test bed you know sidewalk labs headquarters is there and they're what their google's or excuse me alphabet's kind of urban tech arm um they were kind of using it as a test bed Maybe they found that the particular political and cultural context in Toronto was a bit more friendly for them. So they ultimately moved and tried to build a city from the internet up, going back to our metaphors question. They wanted to build a city in the model of the internet, and Toronto ultimately didn't work there either. But Hudson Yards was supposed to be kind of the playground to try out a lot of these city as computer ideas. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting case study of like converging forms of hubristic planning um, it's a desire to kind of take any to any form of undeveloped land. It was, a, in a way, almost an engineering and a developer's challenge. You have this, these train tracks, which seem to be a terra nullius. It's not true. There were people living there, but it was presented as this kind of blank slate, um, this tabula rasa that then almost dared developers to do something with it, to find a way of extracting more kind of data, both data and money from it. So ultimately, they figured out how to it was, it's part of like multiple imaginaries, urban kind of visions. They wanted it to be kind of a hub for the Olympics bid. They've been trying to develop it for decades. And then finally, you have the merger of the right funding, which is not my area of expertise. You'd probably know more about that than I would, getting the right developers, the right funding. Some of it are pretty shady, too, with like EB-5 funding and the kind of gerrymandering of districts to get kind of favorable fun, um, kind of t- tax incentives. But then also you have an engineering breakthrough where you figure out how to like sink these caissons into the ground and build a platform over top of the train tracks and all these other kind of smart building technologies and really kind of some great feats of engineering, props to the engineers who are figuring out how to do it. And and then all these architects kind of contributing to this place. So all of these kind of developments converging produce this thing that is the city as a tree. It is the master plan. And there it's the, both the city as Alexander's tree in terms of this hyper-planned kind of formalistically rigid city, but it's also the decision tree. It's a city that's essentially planned and managed through algorithms. It's really interesting because as you're kind of walking through that process and, you know, I'm, I do think it's a terrible thing, but I'm just also being a little funny about it, right? Like, we, don't, we don't have to like slam Hudson Yards, even though it does suck. But um, <laughs> what's really interesting, and I had a conversation with Candice Fujikani, who I actually released that episode last week, not plugging the episode, but it's germane to this conversation in the sense that, you know, she mentioned how in Hawaii as the indigenous and their allies struggle for land there. Obviously, it's a place that has been overdeveloped, colonized, and 
land is so sacred, how the language of how the mapping happens there is is designed to, you know, take things and render them worthless. So in the rendering it worthless, it becomes in the in the eye of the colonizer easier to do whatever you want to do with it, right? So sacred land becomes condos and, you know, it, land that's not made for, you know, potentially factory farming, but is essential to the ecology of the place can be changed into something else, right? So she and I talked about this and she details it in, in great length in her in her book. And when we talk about how the land is is there, again, it seems like this same mapping happens in cities to claim land to do then what others want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned Candace because I, I teach classes on maps and she joined our class in the spring and reread her yeah. fabulous book. There's a relationship there. I didn't know that. Absolutely. Yeah. I really love that book. And it just reminds us that very similarly to the way that I'm thinking about if we swap in different metaphors, we can think about the city as a different type of ecology, environment, what platform, kind of whatever, again, pick your metaphor. And it has, uh, each metaphor implies a different set of values. In her case, she's talking about a lot of our kind of Western colonial mapping, thinks about land only as having value if it, it, again, extractive value, if you can either get productive, it can be productive, it can produce crops, um, it can uh, kind of generate capital in some way, or it has uh, value in a defense sense where it's kind of uh, uh, maintaining kind of political boundaries. Whereas if we look at kind of the the, um, uh, the traditional or indig- indigenous kind of Hawaiian models that she's looking at, or in, in a lot of work in Australia and Canada as well, it's more about people being in relation to land and us being stewards for it. And if you're mapping a terrain, when you think about you just being one of many species that has the privilege of living in relation with the land and you have a responsibility to it, you're going to produce a very different map than, than if you had thought about that land as something that's going to be there for the taking for you, for you to do with as you wish to enrich in you. I love that that has was already a part of the knowledge base there. And, you know, it, it just seems like oftentimes the we're just using other language and and language is so incredible. And so the stories we tell are so incredible, which is why metaphors that the, as you describe in the book and coming up with different systems is so important. And so much of this language um, that is commonly used when we're talking about our cities and how we think about them is in, in my mind, just the language of the gentrifier, just without saying gentrification, you know, like, is that, as you think about how to how to carve through these different models and metaphors, do you feel like confronting those forces of gentrification are part of this equation? Absolutely. And like the colonial legacies, legacies of kind of white percent, white supremacy, uh, and, you know, these things are entangled. So kind of these colonial and white supremacist histories kind of lead to gentrification. So absolutely. And I want to kind of mention another book, a, a colleague and friend of mine, Jessa Lingle, has a new book about, and I'm blanking on the title of it, but it's looking at parallels between gentrification of cities and gentrification of the internet. So seeing how the gentrification is actually a real phenomenon, but it actually serves as a really valuable metaphor to think about how similar processes we see in cities are leading to the commercialization and kind of um, parceling out the secret gardening, the walling off of the of the internet itself. Um, but this is um, 
but to but there are – one thing I also want to argue in the book is that while a lot of these smart city approaches do tend to adopt these kind of gentrifying colonial ways of thinking, extractivist ways of thinking, there are actually – if we, again, think about an urban intelligence much more capaciously and broadly, we realize that there's so much already going on in our cities that if we just adopted these models that already exist um, and applied them more broadly um, – it would be a boon to so many communities, one of which it's a community that I have worked with, an institution I've worked for for 20 some years. And that's the public library, which, you know, in a in a more commercial gentrifying model of urban development doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't make money. Um, uh, it's, it's not a profitable institution that said the way a lot of people justify the need for public libraries is that there are space for kind of the development of entrepreneurial skills, that they can be kind of business incubators. They can be spaces of business education, which is all great. But I think that there are other non-financially kind of translatable forms of knowledge and intelligence and beauty that happen in a public library that again, are not going to produce financial value, but have tremendous kind of cultural and historical and uh, value and kind of produce more just and and uh, care-based society. So this is where I think it's important to think about these. I don't know that the library is really a metaphor. Some people do use it as a, people, people often use library and archive as a metaphor, but the actual library is could become a metaphor for thinking about how a lot of other social services and infrastructures could work in a more generous way rather than something that's more rooted in kind of having to have efficient and and kind of financial productivity. I, I love that you kind of jumped to the library conversation because it is in my notes. Um, so you, <laughs> so you preempted us getting to libraries because libraries have a a very special place in in my heart, not just because. I am a big reader and I enjoy books and, and reading and, and all of that stuff and always have. But I, rem- I remember like growing up in Brownsville, there was a, a library on, on Church Avenue and it was kind of our local library and it was a good library. And I'm not going to say I read the entire library, but it wasn't like the most well-staffed library, right? Like this is Brownsville in the 80s. So, you know, I'll leave it there. And I remember having to travel to another library that was in uh, a white neighborhood. And it was really the first time my parents let me get on a bus um, by myself. And I don't know how old I was, eight or nine. So it's kind of weird to me also when people are like, they don't let their kids do anything. And I'm like, I was taking a bus when I was a kid. (laughs) But nonetheless, since then, I've kind of had this like real love affair for libraries because they've changed my life in a lot of ways um, and gave me opportunities to experience things and do things, even if it was a little bit of independence as a kid getting on the B-78 bus on Ralph Avenue um, to to Mill Basin. So you've touched on it, you know, in your response, but I also wanted to give you an opportunity to, to even go into more detail if possible about how, like the collective sort of takeaways that we can take from a library and an archival model and introduce them into other parts of how a city could operate. 
Sure. So I'll just give you like one historical example that maybe connects to some of the things we've been talking about earlier. There was a, I forget which organization in the city was organizing, um, or which um, institution in the city was organizing an event about the sharing kind of economy back when that was big, maybe a decade or so ago. And I was invited to be on a panel at like a big museum or something. And I said, I'd love to talk about libraries. Said, well, that doesn't really fit. That doesn't fit the way we're thinking about it. But libraries were a precursor to the sharing economy before we found a way to platform form it and monetize it. So um, that's one example where a lot of the things that we think are new, particularly with like resource sharing, for instance, or building infrastructures for communities, like they already exist as models in the library that we can look to for how to do, not only how to do it logistically, but how to do it with kind of an ethical basis that is probably something that is worth emulating as well. Um, other things that are valuable is uh, going back to our discussion of digital equity. We were talking about the mayoral primate primaries, and I was talking about folks focusing on digital justice and providing internet access to a wider span of the population. That is something that libraries have done, not only providing access to knowledge, but access to the infrastructure that allows people to then access their own knowledge. Um I think critical information literacy is another thing that libraries have emphasized, especially as we have moved into this era. Of we have terms for things like disinformation and misinformation, and and um, we know more about trolls, for instance, in people's everyday lives, and kind of um, cyber espionage is something that's more in popular consciousness. Um, so, and that's something that not only applies to the way that we you know use our own apps on our phones, but especially as technology is embedded in our everyday environments with surveillance cameras and link kiosks and sensors embedded in the streets and algorithms that are driving urban planning and predictive policing, that critical information literacy goes beyond the screens in front of us and applies to the entire urban environment. I think a library also reminds us of the ver variety of different knowledges way beyond smartness that matter in a city. So you have like the way a library do, um, like builds, it does its collection development, the way it builds a collection. So the books it has on its shelves, the uh, databases that it subscribes through that then makes available to its publics, but also the fact that a lot of libraries, not a lot, but those that maybe are a bit more in um, kind of uh, um, uh, has the, have the resources or a little bit more scrappy and resourceful have been developing things like or, um, oral history collections, local art, local community archives, some even becoming hubs for the production of public media, especially in communities where they've lost their public newspapers. So the library is kind of this crystallization, a reminder that these myriad forms of intelligence and that their that expertise is distributed really widely in a community in a city. I'm smiling about libraries because as I was reading the book, I, I laughed at the Bloomberg terminals because of my obviously like trader trauma. And then I also got a big smile because you mentioned um, the Odi library in Helsinki, which I've never seen in person, but I've used it in lectures and talks. And I, I had the pleasure of interviewing um, Dr. Ann Staneros, um, who was the first chief design officer of a city anywhere. And when I interviewed her, we talked a lot about how Helsinki works and how the library works. And so to see it referenced in, in your book gave me a, a big smile. I hope she's listening because I'm sure she's going to get a kick out of this. But it's also like they're beautiful when done right, right? Like there's a aesthetic quality, I think, to a library that is an addition to a city as a, as a physical structure. 
Yeah. And this was really the focus of my first book, which came out of my dissertation, which I wrote a long time ago, over two decades ago, where, um, uh, you know, you could choose to put your um, city funding into the development of new sports facilities or um, kind of develop the waterway. All of these things are valuable in their own way. But when you, ch- you uh, like my focus primarily for my dissertation was on Seattle, where the city decided to tax itself overwhelmingly to build a new library. So a city decided that this is worth us like giving ourselves a little bit of pain because we're we're going to benefit from it. And we're going to allow those who are more disenfranchised to benefit from this institution, too. And then when you have fantastic architecture, that is really a really resonant cultural symbol. It says like this matters to us. All those forms of knowledge that I just mentioned earlier deserve a, um, a, a, a fitting a noble home for them. I also just one little footnote, though, is that there are so many really vibrant, fantastic branch libraries throughout the city, throughout all the boroughs, not fancy architecture at all, but still doing amazing things and are really important parts of the everyday lives of the people in the city, especially kind of seniors, teenagers, more marginalized communities. So our good, great architecture is super inspiring and very important. And I think it's you know, worth providing with funding and cultural support. But I also just want to, you know, remind people that you don't need fancy architecture to do amazing things. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that notion. And it's it's great that you particularly pointed that out and, and emphasized it because ne- neither the libraries I grew up with were architectural wonders. They were like little one-story buildings and both of them gave me a, a really good foundation and for me to be here and have done all these things. So they don't got to be fancy. They just got to have the things they need, like microfish. Many young listeners are not going to know what microfish is. (laughs) I I actually pity them for not knowing the joy of microfiche and microfilm. It's so fun. But just to this one more little, like a footnote to the footnote is going back to the last chapter about maintenance and care, that maybe you don't have fancy architecture, but at least you have to have like a working heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system. You have to have a good roof. You have to have more than one outlet for people to plug in their machines these days. This is something that because we have so underfunded public infrastructures like libraries, they can't physically do the work that they need to do because they're understaffed. The facilities aren't up to par. But this is where libraries and maintenance have to come together. So even if they're humble spaces, they have to be maintained to some basic level to be functional. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to spend some time on maintenance and I'm watching the time to make sure that we don't go too far over because we do have two other segments of of the show to get to. But I want to talk about the idea of, of maintenance because as you cited in the book, so often when we're talking about innovation, when we're talking about what's forward thinking, we're not thinking about maintenance, right? It's about what's new rather than maintaining the things that already exist, our our infrastructure. And so much of it is invisible, right? Kind of coming back to that theme and the people who handle it and, and and are stewards of it and are custodians of it are also many times invisible. So I I wanna spend some time on maintenance as a a key part of of innovation in our in our cities. I think the the recent storms in in New York and, and Sandy even before that are, are kind of evidence of the need for this kind of centering. 
Absolutely. And I think that there are a whole bunch of ways that maintenance intersects with some of the themes we've been talking about before. So the idea that, you know, maintenance, which is maybe looking retrospectively, um, preserving, conserving what already exists, is not antithetical to smartness if you do want to prioritize or engage in smart thinking and smart development. You can really productively use kind of sensors and cameras and things to main, to kind of monitor the status of our, our infrastructure, um, storm walls, bridges, tunnels, et cetera. So there are ways to use automated technologies to aid in, in maintenance efforts. So that's one way that they can converge. It's also sometimes a matter of where you're going to put your priorities. You're going to be developing new, fancy, sexy things that kind of have commercial application or maybe maintaining things that aren't going to, again, like a library, make a lot of money, but are going to save a lot of lives and make people's lives a lot better on a physical kind of um, mental and physical health level and uh, preserve the resilience or enhance the resilience of the environment and the ecology as a whole, not only humans, but also the other species we live with too. So sometimes it's a matter of where are you going to put your R&D money? Is it into the development of a new app that's going to deliver your food faster to you? Or is it going to be in you know shoring up a bridge somewhere or finding ways to deploy signals in a tunnel to make it work more efficiently? So but then a third way is that, again, if we want to think more capaciously beyond, beyond smartness as the epistemological kind of pinnacle, as the, the form of knowing that we want to aim toward, we tend to forget the fact that all of the work that our maintenance workers, which is not often glamorous work, the pandemic has thankfully shed some light on that. And that maybe, I don't know what good what material good it's done, aside from like some parades and some clapping at night, but it demonstrates that there is all kinds of really historied, embodied forms of knowledge knowledge uh, that are required to steward a community in a physical city that are just as, if not more important than smart ways of knowing. It's embedded in the people who do that work and the institutions that do that work. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I want to get to this this other question and, and then we're going to get to the final two segments of the show because we've we've covered so much ground in terms of talking about metaphors and the sort of mechanical way in which we've we've landed which is there's a long history of that right like the the brain as a clock and our bodies as machines and so the the way in which we've latched on to these this thinking and and sort of it's taken on different iterations as the technology has changed we can kind of trace that and land in a, in a place where it's it's understandable though there are obviously many other ways to think about this we've talked about several of them, but I think at, at some point what folks are trying to do, and this is my giving people the benefit of the doubt who do this, is that they're looking for clarity in a way, like making sense of the universe. And one of the, one of the things you highlighted that I've, that I've really underlined that I thought was really special was, I think you used the term muddiness in, in a lot of the way we, we think about these it's like finding value in things. And I thought that that was such an interesting counter to maybe arguments that are seeking more clarity, that there's real value in that in that muddiness. And I started thinking about music and, and the sound of how that connects. And so I wanted to, to go out on kind of pulling apart that notion of, of muddiness and the complexity that that lives there. 
So there are a lot of ways where I think thinking about mud can be productive. One of them is that it reminds us of kind of like the the fact that we have to engage ecologically with cities, that our cities are not kind of just concrete environments. They are ecologies. They are natural cultural ecologies. So that requires various forms of intelligence to be able to, you know, recognize our, going back to Candace Fujikani's discussion, you know, how do we map a city when we are stewarding a place of abundance, if we think of our cities that way too? But then also muddiness is maybe more epistemological and metaphorical. And this is, goes back to the discussion earlier on about dashboards. The early, some of the earliest etymological uses of the term dashboard were kind of on a car to prevent mud from being kicked up into the carriage. So it was physically to keep people from getting dirty. The way our digital dashboards work is to keep out all the stuff that kind of obfuscates. So it keeps the intellectual or the intellectual, the intelligence mud away. But really what that does is like um, brackets out all the stuff that's a little fuzzier, that's harder to grapple with, the deeper, more entangled problems that don't lend themselves to widget- widgetization on a dashboard. And we, ha- that we have to grapple with that kind of epistemological mud too, because that's often the most, as you said, like special or poetic or, or sticky stuff that requires collective intelligences to grapple with in a city. It's a wonderful way of, of thinking about things. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big hip hop fan. And so I thought about like, there's this moment in hip hop where the beats, like people would describe them as like really muddy or grimy and sort of like mid, late, late early to mid nineties. And Redman was a big part of doing that. Like he had an album called Muddy Waters. And it just made me think about that sound as I was, as I was reading the book. So somehow a city's not a computer and Redman became linked in my in my mind, I think that's going to be the first and only time you hear that. In, in, I love it though. I love that <laughs> in relationship to to the book. And he has another great song called "Cosmic Slop," which has this same kind of sound and is taken from a funkadelic record. So I was all over the place when I was reading this, as you as you can see. But it's a it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And you know, before we go out, go out. I want to get to off the dome, which are just a couple of a few quick questions. Actually, three. And it's the first thing that comes to your mind. So are you set? I guess so. <laughs> okay. That sounds like someone who's confident because there's no okay. there's no wrong answer, <laughs> yes, yes, right? I'm so set. what's not I'm set. All right. <laughs> what's not to be confident about? What's been the craziest request you've gotten in your professional career? Uh, well, because I used to be in a media studies department, I think people in other parts of the university think of media studies as like building websites and fixing AV equipment. So I have had colleagues ask me to like build websites for their classes and fix the the audiovisual equipment in their classrooms, thinking that that's not that I am so glad that people exist to do that work. Just that they're thinking that my work as a media scholar is involves like fixing equipment. That was probably the some of the I've gotten a few of those crazy requests. Yeah, that's <laughs> anybody asking me to fix anything is going to be in for like a really big disappointment. If it's not turn <laughs> on and turn off, then good luck with that. <laughs> so hopefully, no one will ever make a request like that of someone like me. Um, question number two: If you were to travel somewhere and you knew you had to spend more time than a year, where would that place be? Probably Japan. Because I've never been there. I have not. uh, And there is so much kind of uh, culturally, historically, aesthetically that I'm fascinated by in Japan that I I think I could probably certainly fill up a year with with exploring and learning about new things. You can't go wrong with with Japan. I've never been myself, but it's a I think it's one of those places that is really in people's collective imagination. So obviously an awesome choice. And finally, even though I didn't mean to go into the primary earlier, that was an accident. I did have a kind of a political sort of 
funny political question. Um, if you were running for office, any office, doesn't matter, what would be your campaign slogan? This is going to be corny, but these are words I've known for for my students. Capacious, capacious care. So I'm all for like capaciousness, for thinking broadly about things, as we might have seen with, you know, our discussion here, like thinking about epistemology capaciously and smartness capaciously and cities as multiple forms of intelligence. And then care is being a central value. So it's a little corny, but that's the first thing that came to came to mind. That's off the dome. Hey, first of all, anything having care can't be corny. And we've seen what politicians come up with. So, okay, all right. I guess it's no worse than that. That is that is far from corny because most of the time they're they're awful, right? You probably haven't seen anything interesting since they're like like Ike or something like that, right? I have not. Not that nothing memorable. It's, absolutely. So nice and painless. And now we're going to get to the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners. I came in with a drop. I'm assuming you have one too. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? I have to admit, I forgot about this. Could you please remind me what the drop is? It can be anything. It could be a book, a film, a piece of music, anything that you think our listeners should be aware of that they might not be aware of. So it's okay. just kind of a, I found this and I thought it was interesting. So while you're thinking, I'm okay. going to give mine, which is sort of All broad. Right. I've been on these broad kicks lately because- in in sub, in previous episodes, I gave um like I was just like listen to all things Anita Baker like you know go out there and, and dive into her discography and listen to her music and then another recent episode I, I again was not specific and I suggested Sade and I was like really dive into Sade and just start to explore her music and so I'm doing that again with um Bill Withers who's one of my 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 favorite artists he's an incredible singer his personal career is like his personal how he entered into music is is fascinating and i just don't think you can go wrong with like listening to any of his music pick an album start at the beginning and just jump into it so my um drop for this for this episode is all things bill withers explore him you won't regret it i don't think and that's my drop that's great well, there we have already talked about a book in this our discussion. We've talked about a book that has really kind of shaped my thinking this year, and that's Kenneth Fujikane's book, Mapping Abundance. But I want to mention another one, and that's another colleague, friend of mine, Max Lieberiron's book, Pollution is Colonialism. And there she's really rethinking kind of pollution as a colonial force. Um, the idea of, you know, managing waste is something in order to think about waste management and the Anthropocene, we have to grapple with histories of colonialism as well. But not only is the argument for the book really compelling and interesting, but the way they wrote it, where it's in dialogue with all of these kind of indigenous thinkers, it's infusing the book with indigenous epistemologies and, and methodologies and thinking about our obligations to the people that we write for or, and are in dialogue with. Way more thoughtful about those things than most, not only academic writers, but most writers in general. So I would recommend that. And I also, if I can pick one more, walking. I think walking is just an amazing methodology. I mean, it's it's, it's like super low tech. Uh, it's, it's perfect. It's great for mental, physical health. Most of my best ideas come from walking. So if anybody is feeling low, stuck, unproductive, no good ideas, writer's block, I feel like walking is a is a foolproof, um, not fail from, but it's a, it's a very likely cure or remedy for for so many different ailments. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> when you got to shake out the cobwebs, as they say, start moving. 
Yo, that's right. They will, they will definitely, even if you don't come up with the epiphany, you'll still feel better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So big fan, big fan of those. Those are great drops. See, I did right it. off the <laughs> dome and boom, you were there. That was awesome. <laughs> so thank you. I want to, I want to thank you so much for joining me on, on the deep dive. The book is amazing. And and actually I'll, I'll also say to those who go out and get the book, it's like very nicely designed. Like I love the attention to the book, like it's soft covers, a nice size, like, I don't know. It's just a nice, clean, like lovely book. It's going to look great on the shelf now that I finished it. And, you know, can't thank you enough for, for being on the deep dive with me. This is a great conversation. This is really fun. Thank you very much, Philip. I appreciate it. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.